Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Five Star App Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpis, co-founder of Meditation Studio and your host on Untangle, along with my co-host, Ariel Garten, one of the founders of brain-sensing device, Muse. Join us each week as we introduce you to authors, experts, and thought leaders who share their stories on how meditation, mindfulness, and brain-focused practices have the power to change our lives. Whether you're just learning to meditate or want to deepen your practice, Meditation Studio, with hundreds of guided meditations and over 50 amazing teachers, and Muse, which provides great feedback on your practice, are two awesome tools you'll want to have in your back pocket. Today, our guest is psychologist and best-selling author Rick Hansen. His new book is called Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. It's another great book by Rick, teaching us how to use positive neuroplasticity to develop the 12 most essential inner strengths and resources we need to cope with the challenges that we all face at one time or another. He makes it all very real when he says we need resilience every day of our lives to simply deal with challenges, big and small. The resources he describes are both simple and incredibly wise. Everything from developing compassion and self-compassion to grit, learning, confidence, motivation, intimacy, and so much more. And he discusses the mental and motivational machinery we need to really grow these inner resources. We love Rick's brand of wisdom. Now, here's Rick. Rick, it's so awesome to have you back on Untangle. Thanks so much for being here. Patricia, it's an honor and a pleasure. Well, so you've written another book, and this one's called Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. And I'm really interested to hear why you decided to write this book and how resilience is tied to happiness, what your focus has been on your, on your other books and on your work. If we're going to be happy in a changing world, and I kind of use the word well-being rather than happiness, if we're going to have lasting well-being in a changing world, we need to be resilient. Mm -hmm. A lot of positive psychology is kind of presented sometimes as a uh, magic carpet ride. Do this practice and voila, zoom, you're in this wonderful place. And okay, those practices are good. But meanwhile, on planet Earth, we have to cope. We have to adapt, particularly these days, I think, for many people in which there's often this kind of uneasy background sense that the world somehow is becoming unglued in a scary kind of way. If we're going to have well-being over time, we need to have resilience. To have resilience, we need to have inner resources, inner Mm -hmm. strengths of various kinds, such as mindfulness, grit, gratitude, compassion, confidence, and so forth. As someone who's very interested in how to cope and engage life in a big way while simultaneously being at peace inside, resilience is such an important factor of that. And then, of course, that takes you into, as the book does, how to grow the inner resources that actually make you resilient over the long haul. Yeah, I love that you're referring to them as inner resources because I feel like that's the big gap that many of us have. How do we cultivate these tools that help us manage all of the challenges in life. And I love what one of the reviewers of your book said, these simple tools to grow that unshakable core of calm, strength, and happiness that is the secret longing of every human heart. Do you think it's the secret longing because 
these resources aren't natural to us. Hmm. I think the, that sense of inner peace and happiness and love, there's a warm heartedness in that unshakable core, is the longing of everyone. And in a sense, that's our home base. When, as you know, when the body is not disturbed with an internal sense of threats to safety or we're not disturbed in terms of our other two needs, primary overarching needs for satisfaction or connection, then whether we're a zebra or a mouse or a lizard or a monkey or a human, we mm-hmm. tend to default to our home base of basic contentment, basic calm, and basic connection. That's our home base. And I think there's a longing to come home and uh, have that feeling of being at home in ourselves. And yet so many people experience a kind of chronic inner homelessness. They don't feel sufficiently resourced in terms of meeting their own needs, because of course, resilience is about meeting your needs. So they go through life in a chronic state of mild to moderate fight, flight, stress. One of the deep possibilities is to internalize again and again and again using what I call positive neuroplasticity. That's a term that others use as well. Mm-hmm. The actual internalization of beneficial experiences so that they become increasingly hardwired as lasting changes in our nervous system. As we grow more and more of that unshakable core inside through internalizing the experience of needs sufficiently met, then in the next moment, we meet reality as it comes at us, uh, including with its challenges to our needs, with already feeling a kind of fullness and enoughness and balance inside as the basis upon which we deal with the waves of life coming at us. And that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, it's so interesting that you call it like this inner homelessness. What do you think is the difference between someone that has these resources versus someone that doesn't? If you don't have resources inside, in other words, if it feels inside like you're not very able to soothe yourself and calm Mm -hmm. yourself, or you're not able to encourage yourself, or you don't have self-worth inside, or maybe inside there's not much empathy for others or compassion for them, or compassion for yourself. I can just keep going. These are well understood in psychology, things like executive functions, secure attachment, and also the character virtues, patience, large-heartedness, commitment to justice, grit, just being tough, being able to have fortitude and patience inside yourself. If we don't have those kind of resources, we very rapidly feel overwhelmed by life. And to use a bit of a metaphor, if you think about a sailboat and its keel, if a sailboat doesn't have a keel, it's very easy to flip over. I can speak from experience. I capsized a sailboat with no keel. Uh But if that keel deepens in the water and the deeper it goes, then it's harder and harder to flip the boat which means that the individual who has grown this keel, in effect, inside through the methods in my book and the Mm -hmm. repeated internalization of beneficial experiences of psychological resources, thereby growing them, such a person who has done that, and therefore, in the metaphor, deepen their keel in the water, is more able to handle big challenges in life and pursue Mm -hmm. big dreams. Right. More able to kind of go out in the deep, dark blue and dare greatly, as Brene Brown puts it, and also have a kind of deserved, earned confidence inside that you can handle what life throws you. It may rock you. Mm -hmm. We're being real here, but it's not going to sink you. And even if it hits you really hard, you're going to recover more rapidly as you've grown this deep keel inside yourself. That makes it so much easier to understand because we know we don't want to be thrown by everything that comes our way. We want to be able to reboot ourselves, if you will. And I kind of wonder, you also talk about 
using these tools when we're rattled by relationship issues or financial worries or even the loss of a loved one. And I want to get into each of the tools a little bit later, but is there any single one that is Mm. non-negotiable that will really be that keel or that home base? Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. So in the book, in a systematic way that is based on a fundamental model of how the brain evolved in its three stages, reptilian brainstem, mammalian subcortex, primate human neocortex, and how the evolution of the brain relates to how we manage our three needs, avoiding harms for safety, approaching rewards for satisfaction, and attaching to others. So that's kind of an overarching framework. But anyway, inside that framework, we have these 12 strengths, as you know, which are the 12 chapters of the book. If I were to say, which strength I think is the most important one, as you put it, non-negotiable. Honestly, I would pick the strength of learning because learning most broadly, and when I say learning, I don't mean memorizing the multiplication tables, learning how to be a better parent or partner or more effective leader or learning how to be more able to manage your own thoughts and feelings Mm -hmm. or more generally the development of healing or social emotional learning or growing as an individual. Mm. To me, that's the strength that grows the other strengths. It's the strength of strengths because that's the one that helps you develop the other strengths. And I get into the fundamental positive neuroplasticity of how to, in effect, turbocharge your own mind and brain so that you steepen your personal growth curve or healing curve as you move through your day. And then you also have an opportunity to look for opportunities over the course of your day to have the experience that will grow your strengths inside, which then changes everything. Instead of looking at your day as like, I... Like you're moving against a headwind, just uh, uphill, instead of seeing a day like that, which is so understandable, of course. And many, many people do see their day in that way. They kind of girdle their loins, as it were, to get through their day. Instead, using the approach in the book, you start seeing your day as full of opportunities to heal and develop, growing the good inside yourself, inside your heart for your own sake over the course of your day. And along the way, of course, having more inside you uh, to give to other people, Mm. but to be able to do that you need to be able to engage the strength of learning. And in effect, as well, learn how to learn. Get better at getting better, which then is the kind of superpower of superpowers that develops the rest of them. That's awesome to know that. And I think you talked about this in our last interview, this growth mindset versus a fixed Mm -hmm. mindset. And as long as we have this growth mindset, then that sort of opens up these opportunities to learn everything else that you're talking about in this book. Yeah, the growth mindset, a term, as you know, coined by Carol Dweck, is really important. And people, it's not so much that you have it or you don't, but there are degrees of it and so forth. But what's really interesting about most of the work related to the growth mindset that I've seen is that it's tended to be presented as sort of you have it or you don't. And as a general orientation, it helps you appreciate learning as a value. Okay, great. But the growth mindset material does not tend to take people into the how of growing. It doesn't teach itself what you can do in your mind when you're talking with your partner, say, to really help it land how to be more effective in the future. Or the growth mindset doesn't just itself let you know that if you're meditating, for example, how can you help the fruits of your practice sink in as much as possible so that they gradually shape you and you develop as a trait over time, greater calm or gratitude or self-acceptance. And this movement, by the way, from states of calm or self-compassion or self-acceptance to trait calm, trait self-compassion, 
trade joy, trade happiness, that's a critically important transition. And many people simply assume that experiencing equals learning. No, 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 no. I think I'll be blind. I, you know, I started meditating in 1974 and I started also working with people right about the same time in therapeutic ways. And it is humbling to appreciate mm-hmm. that so many of our beneficial moments in practice ourselves, let's say, yeah. or while helping other people, so much of it is wasted on the brain. It's mm-hmm. momentarily nice. It's better than a stick in the eye, but we're not doing things inside our mind to help it change our brain. And unless we change the brain, by definition, there's no healing, there's no learning, there's no development. And so I find it uh, really important to think about not just having a mindset of growth, but being mindful of growth and becoming skillful with growth. A lot of focus on character strengths these days or other forms of psychological resources usefully focuses on identifying them in yourself, like do you have a growth mindset or not, and then applying them in different settings, using them in different ways. That's good. But what about growing them in the first place? And that's what this book systematically focuses on. How do you grow greater compassion or mindfulness or grit or gratitude or some of the other chapters in the book? Yeah. And we're going to get into each of the chapters in a few seconds because we talked about this when we were talking about your first book and this idea of experiencing what we want to grow and then Mm -hmm. converting that into a real lasting change in your nervous system. And I think this is right. That's sort of the fundamental basis of what you're talking about that makes this so different. And so if I look at a real example, like let's say you're in a conflict with your spouse and Mm. you know what you should be doing, but you're not doing it. Where do these tools really help you in that moment where you want to say you're such a jerk or you're this or that? Where can you really sort of own this possibility of change? That's great. Let's start with that example. Definitely want to relate to. So let's say that your partner, and we could generalize it also to a friend, say, or coworker, parent, or your kid, acting in such a way that really stirs us up. Maybe we feel hurt by it or irritated or alarmed by it, mistreated. We're revved up. Let's say over here, Mm -hmm. what do we do? And then the resource question becomes, what would be useful if it were more present in the mind right now? In other words, in the middle of all this, would it be helpful if I had a greater capacity to step back from my reactions and observe them mindfully, disidentifying from them and holding them in a larger space of awareness rather than feeling identified with them, hijacked by them, and completely invaded by them? Right there. So we have the resource of mindfulness. Well, that's a resource that can be developed over time. Or let's suppose that the other person has said something that's quite hurtful and upsetting. What would help if it were more present in the mind as a factor, as a mental resource? Well, self-calming would help. Self-soothing would help. Self-encouraging. Maybe the other person has been really critical or mean unfairly. It would really help to have parts of ourselves inside or factors inside that were nourishing and self-nurturing and encouraging. Well, that's another resource that would really, really help. So I'll just use those as two different examples, the resource of mindfulness, and let's say the resource of self-nurturance. In the moment, what we can do is draw upon them. And sometimes what happens in the beginning is that we draw upon them kind of deliberately. We sort of think to ourselves, or maybe we have Patricia's voice in our head saying, now, now, you're really getting mad, be mindful, (laughs) okay? Mm -hmm. So we deliberately call up a resource, or maybe to use the other example, self-nurturing, self-soothing, and self-compassion and self and so on, we say to ourselves, all right, 
got to be self-compassionate here. I'm really hurting. Call on my, I call it a caring committee inside ourselves. Call on self-caring for this. All right. With practice and repetition, we develop the habit of trait activation as needed. So they more and more automatically start coming online without us needing to be deliberate or exercise top-down influence over that. We just naturally, when others, let's say, are provocative, become more mindful about our reactions, or we naturally become kind and sweet and nurturing to ourselves if we feel hurt. They more automatically come online. That's great. The movement from deliberate to automatic really marks the trajectory of learning. If you think Mm -hmm. about it, apply in almost any domain. Yeah. Then offstage or before the oatmeal hits the fan or after the oatmeal has hit the fan, we have the opportunity to grow that resource in the first place. So for example, over time, like using your app or through other means, people might develop mindfulness. Or over time, perhaps in one of my online experiential programs, they might develop more self-compassion, self-nurturance, self-caring. Great. And then as you develop trait mindfulness or trait self-nurturance, it's easier to draw upon it deliberately in the heat of the moment. And also as we develop that trait over time, it more and more comes online automatically. Now, just to finish, to me, this process seems so obvious, and I almost feel dumb just laying it out here like this, and yet it's so interesting. This fundamental dynamic of resource acquisition is rarely, rarely studied in any kind of thoroughgoing way, even by people who are in the growth business, like myself. I'm kind of calling myself out here too. But as we get better at the process of growth itself, then we can apply that general process in the positive neuroplasticity that underlies it. We can apply that general process to the specific inner resources, kind of the specific muscles that would really help us these days for what we particularly are challenged by. We're going to take a quick break to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Do Nothing Retreat. If you're a busy leader at work or at home and you're ready to learn meditation and to be more aware and fully present in your life, this retreat is for you. It's an amazing four-day program in the magnificent Colorado Rockies. It's truly designed for people who want to show up in the best way possible every single day. Designed by award-winning entrepreneur Rob Dubay, you'll want to check it out. For more information, go to donothingbook.com slash retreat. If you sign up and mention Untangle, there's a discount. Now, back to our show. I have a, another question about that, though, because yeah. I really like what you're saying about calling in our resources and mm-hmm. how important that is to any relationship, whether at work or at home. When you're triggered, often people will worry about whether it's there's some intuition that they're having about another person versus the action or feeling that they themselves have. And we learn in mindfulness to sort of look at ourselves and to witness our own reactions and our own behaviors. But I'm also curious about when something is intuition, mm-hmm. if there's an action that we need to take versus, you know, all of these inner care measures and resources that we're developing, when is there a need for taking action? Or how do you know that difference between intuition mm-hmm. and action. Really, I think in its implications. So I'm going to unpack it in part to make sure that I'm actually tracking your question properly here. Okay. To me, the first thing you're talking about is being able to distinguish 
inner empathy from outer empathy, to say it a certain way, or to distinguish what's my reaction here and what's their experience over there. And can I separate out what's true about what's happening inside me from a clarity of tracking and seeing accurately what's actually happening in that other person? Right off the top, that is an inner resource, being able to differentiate or to have a boundary or to be able to make a distinction between their mind stream and your mind stream. And sometimes I think it's really, really helpful for people to be able to make that distinction itself, especially if they, by their nature, are very open or sensitive or empathic, to develop that capacity to separate what's happening with them from what's happening inside you. Even to the level of just because you are upset doesn't necessarily mean that I did something wrong, which I think is a breakthrough for a lot of people to feel right, exactly. in a healthy way entitled to declare that if only inside their mind, if only to themselves. It draws on the proverb, fences make for good neighbors. <laughs> you know, being able to establish that distinction, that differentiation yeah. between their mind stream and your mind stream actually promotes intimacy, even as it supports internal autonomy. That development of the distinction, the boundary between them and you is itself something that we can grow and develop over time, especially if the boundaries are really blurred, if a person tends toward enmeshment in their relationships. So point one, right? And just as with anything, to kind of make it explicit here, we develop a resource in two necessary and sufficient stages. First, we have to experience it or a factor of it. And then second, critically important, we must internalize that experience in some way as a lasting change of neural structure or function. We must internalize the experience of the resource as a lasting change in the brain for it to develop at all as a trait. By definition, it seems so obvious, but because we routinely forget or skip mm -hmm. the second stage, yeah. I want to really emphasize it here. So it's and through having experiences. The how of the second stage. Yeah, exactly. It's through having experiences of this differentiation, this boundary, this fence, the white picket little fence, or maybe a foot of impenetrable glass, I don't know, mm -hmm. between you and the other person. When you have an experience of that differentiation, slow it down for a few breaths in a row. Feel it in your body. What's it feel like to go, you're over there. I'm over here. Mm -hmm. uh, just because you're upset doesn't necessarily mean I did something bad. I'm not necessarily implicated in your mind stream. When you're having that experience, take some time with it to really feel it, to help it sink in. Then if I'm following you right, you're really talking about the key question, when do we take action based on what we see? So yeah. let's say over here, you have an intuition that let's say over there, the other person actually does not prioritize listening to you or that the other person over there is perfectly comfortable with interrupting you routinely, disrespectfully maybe. Or you start to realize that over there, this is a person who's really not committed to sobriety and routinely they're gonna get into a bad place with drugs or alcohol or whatever it might be. See what's true over there. For me, then there are kind of two questions here. One, make sure you see what you see. Take a little time, obviously, to try to let yourself and help yourself recognize what is objective reality over there, knowing that we're all fallible and we all talk about things differently. But at the end of the day, reality is real. And whatever is the case is actually the case. Whatever is true about that person over there is actually true about that person. And I think there are two kinds of pitfalls. One is people often jump too quickly to a kind of righteous positionality and certainty about you're this way about the other person. But man, it could well be that there are more times as many people who fall into the pitfall of doubting what they recognize mm -hmm. in that other person. 
especially if their truth or their capacity to discern the truth was undermined when they were a kid or as an adult in an important relationship. So I think it's actually important to kind of support yourself in seeing what you see. That was really important for me as a child to kind of claim the right to discern, for me, one of the most sacred things of all, which is deep down inside your inner temple, the sanctuary of the core of your being, to know what you know for yourself, to see what you see. That's a really important thing. And that's also a resource that a person can develop over time. And then to finish, once you, you know, have a sense of clarity about seeing what you see, and you can also, in effect, back your own play, you support yourself in validating, mm-hmm. legitimizing what you see, that makes it a lot easier to have confidence in action. And then based on what you see, you act. Now, maybe the action is to wait longer, <laughs> you know, right. be patient, hold your tongue. Or maybe the action is to realize, well, I'm outnumbered here. I'm outgunned here. I don't have the causes and conditions present to really go to battle, to use that metaphor, or to mm-hmm. really go at it. It's not safe. I'm not going to do that. So maybe that's what you decide to do. Mm -hmm. Or alternately, you move into speaking up and trying to nudge the world around you to a better place. I find that it naturally unfolds from that kind of clarity. Yeah. Yeah. And from developing all of these inner resources that you're talking about too. That's right. When you talked about learning, I do want to go through really quickly all of the different chapters, but I want to understand when you talked about learning and you talk about it like a particular need is best met by the inner strengths that are matched to it. And you talk about a linking method as Mm -hmm. part of this neuropsychology of learning. Can you describe, and maybe you have in some ways already, but if you could just talk about that linking method, I think that could be really helpful for the, when, as we go through some of the other. Two things here. One is the first part of what you said is that indeed it's really useful to find resources and to grow them inside yourselves that are matched to the particular need. And so if you think as a simplifying framework about the three needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, if you have a safety need, if you're being threatened by somebody, or if you're dealing with chronic anxiety, either because of your temperament perhaps or your life history, if you're dealing with a safety need, it's not really helpful to bring in a resource for satisfaction. In other words, if you're anxious, gratitude is not an antidote. It's not going to help you. You need to bring in a resource that's targeted to anxiety, such as self-calming, self-soothing, relaxation, a recognition of protections, or being able to appraise threats accurately and not overestimate them. So that's the general idea. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly powerful, as you know, Patricia, when you kind of zoom in on, all right, where does it hurt inside? Or what am I dealing with outside? And then think to yourself, all right, what would help if it were more present inside my mind? In other words, that would be matched. And in the book and in my work in general, I give a lot of roadmaps for sort of working backwards from the issue, the challenge, to identify the resource that would be best matched to it. But in general, I think people can also be intuitive about this and think to themselves, what would be really useful? That's part one. Part two, to go to the linking notion, as you know, I think that there's a fundamental neuropsychology of learning. There's some fundamental steps if you want to help yourself change for the better. And I summarize all that in the acronym HEAL, H-E-A-L, have the beneficial experience and then move into the second stage of learning I call installation or internalization by enriching the experience, E for enriching, absorbing the experience, A for absorbing, and then optionally, if you want, linking the beneficial, usually enjoyable experience to some negative material, some old pain. 
And so here now, it really helps to know what the matching is between the kind of beneficial experiences you're taking in and trying to grow in yourself, like let's say calming yourself or soothing yourself or feeling protected rationally and objectively. That's a really good resource to bring into yourself. And then if you want, while you're experiencing that, while you are feeling more protected or feeling calmer inside, focus on that in the foreground of awareness. And then off to the side, you can link that wonderful positive resource experience to negative material like anxiety or kind of a habit of feeling overwhelmed by invasive things coming at you. And with repetition, as you repeatedly are aware of both a big positive resource experience and a small off to the side matched negative experience of one kind or another, the positive will gradually associate to the negative and soothe it and ease it and eventually even replace it. Yeah. And is the repetition the key? Is that the practice part of it? You can't really do it once and have that become a habit, right? That's right. With repetition. You're right. It gradually accumulates and you can trust this process and you will have earned your own well-being as a result. So of all of the inner resources or these tools that we're learning in your book, you already mentioned that learning, and I've already learned so much just from having you describe all of that. Could you go through some of the others that you feel are really critical? Yeah, why don't I, I'll very rapidly name all 12 and then okay. in sequence and people can get a sense of the flow here. Yeah. And then I'll highlight maybe two of them awesome. uh, in addition to learning that I've already highlighted. The 12 strengths are, and they're in an order that kind of makes sense, although people can easily hop around and find the resource that's matched to what you're dealing with these days. Yeah. So the 12 strengths are compassion, especially self-compassion, because that's the beginning of the journey to get on your own side and be supportive of yourself. So we have compassion, mindfulness, learning. These three are really foundational and they set up the development of the remaining nine. And then comes grit, gratitude, and confidence. These are overarching words that include a lot of things. For example, confidence really includes feelings of self-worth and healing old feelings of inadequacy or being small or self-doubt. And then after those six come the next six, which are calm, motivation, and intimacy. These are ways, for example, of regulating ourselves to meet our needs. And then the final three are courage, especially interpersonal courage. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that were quite brave with the outer world or maybe in business, but yet interpersonally, it was very difficult for them to be vulnerable and to really say what was in their heart. So then we have courage, the last three, courage, aspiration, and how to aspire without getting attached to the results. That's a really important one, especially if you're at all ambitious, you're engaged in life as I am. And then finishing on with generosity. As we give ourselves more, as we fill ourselves up, then naturally enough, we have more to give to others, which then helps feed us back in a wonderful positive circle. And by the way, one of the topics I cover in generosity is forgiveness. Because as we give, we forgive, including forgiving ourselves. So there's a lot of material there, and you can kind of see the overall arc of the book. If I could, maybe I'll just call out two in particular. I've mentioned one is compassion and getting on your own side. It has been shocking to me as a therapist to realize how many people are not actually very for themselves. And you would think, oh, people need to be on their own side, right? Of course, everybody's on their own side. No, many, many people. And if I might generalize statistically in a way, I think that is a fair generalization. 
and tends to be particularly women who have an issue with, or they're for others, or really for others, but they tend to put themselves last. And that's an issue. And because in part, if you're not for yourself, it's hard to really take the steps that are going to grow more resources inside yourself. So in the very beginning of the book, we focus on growing the strength of self-compassion or a very muscular sense of being on your own side or helping yourself accept things rather than fight them and create more friction in, in your life all as ways of applying compassion to yourself. And it's interesting to think about the quality of being determined to help yourself have as good a life as possible, mm-hmm. the quality of being an ally to yourself, of building yourself up rather than tearing yourself down. It's interesting to think about that as a resource that someone can develop and increase and grow inside themselves, and therefore as an opportunity. That's pretty good. Maybe I'll finish on courage. Just one of the things I've seen there about courage, the chapter on courage, is the integration of love and power. Or to put it a little differently, the integration of heart and strength, the strong heart. It's fairly straightforward to be kind and sweet and compassionate toward others. Straightforward. Maybe not always so easy, but it's pretty straightforward. It's also kind of straightforward to be tough with other people or firm or demanding or assertive or pointed in what we have to say. But to be able to bring those two together, to be able to be assertive with others while also holding them in your heart, that's not so common. So that particular chapter focuses on that intersection of strength and lovingness so that you can bring them both together and have your lovingness warm up your strength and have your strength firm up your lovingness. And to finish, the chapter gets into a lot of details about that, how to actually grow those that quality inside yourself, the trait of the strong heart, and then how to use it interactively with other people with a lot of detail. And I mean, you also say in that chapter that relationships are inherently unstable and naturally need repairs. And so I'm sure this sort of integration of heart and strength versus using a hammer for the repairs is probably a lot more effective. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's right. You read the book carefully. I appreciate that. (laughs) One more that I want to ask you about, and then we can close. And that is in the motivation chapter, which I found really interesting because often I think we learn all of these things, but then we need that a little like wind behind our sails. And you talk about this motivational circuit. And Mm. I guess you also talk a little bit about its motivational machinery that helps us to really keep pursuing our goals in the face of challenges. And sort of this is like you talk about resilience is more than just bouncing back from adversity, but it's really about continuing to pursue your goals, even though you are heavily challenged. So how do we do this? You're right to really emphasize a point that I try to emphasize myself, which is that I think lately people have made the word resilient too narrow and Mm -hmm. it's associated only with post-traumatic stress disorder, only with post-traumatic growth, or only with how to survive being a refugee, fleeing for your life, let's say, somewhere. And in addition to that, which is really, really important, we need resilience every day to simply deal with our lives, to manage challenges, to keep on going, to defer gratification, to work through issues with other people, to prod ourselves, to keep going even if it's uncomfortable toward a greater good. So these are really important applications of resilience for life as a whole. It broadens the scope of the need to become more resilient, which is really, really important. 
And then, as you say, with regard to motivation and pursuing opportunities in the face of challenge, the book itself is based on my online experiential program, The Foundations of Wellbeing, which is a wonderfully experiential way to kind of enrich the experience of the book. And in the sections on motivation in that program, I focus a lot on how to, in effect, use the motivational machinery of the brain rather than letting it use you. In other words, we tend to be motivated toward things that are not good for us in various ways, yelling at the television, eating (laughs) too many cookies, being kind of lazy and torpid rather than getting up and doing that exercise and getting going. And one of the things that's so helpful is to focus on the experience of reward associated to whatever you want to motivate in yourself. So in the online experiential program, we get into a lot of detail of that. In the book itself, I talk about how to actually use the brain's dopamine networks, dopamine machinery, so that while you're thinking about in the future doing what you want to motivate, or while you are actually doing or experiencing what you want to motivate, including sometimes you want to motivate yourself to stop doing something. So you're experiencing the absence, let's say, or you're putting on the brakes, what that feels like. In any case, it's something you're trying to motivate, hitting the gas or hitting the brakes. Either way, you're trying to motivate it. And then after you've done the thing that you are trying to motivate, also reflect on the rewards of it. And what that will do naturally in your brain is associate dopamine activity to whatever you want to motivate so that your brain will increasingly be inclined in that direction which is a really, really useful thing. And it's especially important if you're in that subgroup of the population, that a normal subgroup that has fewer dopamine receptors. These are people in particular who tend to kind of start strong and then fade quickly. They don't have enough dopamine receptors, so they need a lot of reward. And if they don't get a lot of reward, they kind of run out of gas. And therefore, it's important in particular, as I go into it in the book, if you're in that subgroup, to make sure you have a lot of reward experiences along the way to help yourself keep motivated towards something or to learn motivation for that thing in the first place. What are some really healthy rewards that you can set up to replace those dopamine receptors? Oh, that's great. So I'm using the word reward just in the ordinary technical sense that a psychologist would as a very general term. The key is the experience. It's not just the idea. If you merely know intellectually that you've checked off the item, let's say, that's not an experience of reward, typically. It's when you have that little moment of accomplishment or relief or a sense of self-worth, as you complete that item, that's an experience of reward, for example. If you feel it in your body. Yeah, the more that it's felt in the body, the more that it it has a kind of sensory or emotional aspect to it, the more it's going to tend to be rewarding. Let's say being more patient with our partner, or if we're trying to motivate getting on that treadmill, I'm speaking Mm -hmm. of two that I apply to myself, for example. (laughs) Or maybe we're trying to motivate ourselves to be willing to stand up and speak up in a business meeting at work and not be so nervous about just saying what you think. If we're trying to motivate those things, it's important to look for the kind of rewards that are available in those things. So let's say with your partner, your partner's saying things and you want to jump in with your good ideas, or maybe your partner's saying things that are critical or you you want to defend against or whatever it might be. If you actually take the higher road, Let's suppose it's actually skillful and appropriate to be patient and not interrupt and kind of wait till your partner's done. If that's actually the case, it's helpful to appreciate the sense of dignity or self-worth. You're keeping Mm -hmm. your cool. 
Yeah. You're not pouring gasoline on the fire of the conflict right there, the argument right there. That yeah. that feels good. That feels self-respecting. It feels reassuring to know you're not making it worse. Yeah. It feels good. Yeah. To know that if there were a video being recorded of the interaction and played back later, you would not wince too much <laughs> at your own right. conduct. Right. Oh, that's a good way to think. Rewards. And if you focus on them in just this little concrete example, that's a way to motivate yourself to be more patient and dignified and not so prickly or reactive in a way that might discredit you later if you're in an argument with somebody. Right. I wish you could be like a little bird on everyone's shoulder when they're in these situations. <laughs> but I'm glad instead you're writing these books so we can keep them with us as we go uh, through life's uh, these everyday challenges that we all face. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you so much. This is awesome, chalk full of wisdom. And I'm so excited about the book and about all the amazing work that you do. So thank you so much for being with us again today. I really appreciate it. Patricia, it's been really great. I love the title of your podcast. And as a longtime meditator myself, I do really think about building up the resource inside of untangling, including really appreciating how good it feels to be disentangled, untangled from, let's say, some ongoing running battle with another person, or how good it feels to feel untangled from the critic inside your own mind. It's really great. And so building up that resource experience, that inner resource of feeling untangled is a wonderful thing. Well, thank you again so much. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you again. Keep writing these books for us. Okay, good. Thank you. Thanks so much to Rick for being on Untangle today. His book, Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness is available at all major booksellers. Rick's website is rickhansen.net. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email me at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And if you have a minute, will you subscribe to our podcast? And if you like it, every rating helps as well. And I hope you'll download Meditation Studio in the App Store. We'll see you next time.